This is the Recorded Internet Broadcast, a.k.a. The Rib, hosted by Tim and Jared. We're going to be discussing a strategy for financial independence and living known as FIRE, which stands for Financial Independence and Retiring Early. FIRE is a strategy that involves having a very high savings rate by reducing your spending and investing that money so that you can retire much earlier in life than usual and be able to make enough money from your investments such that you can maintain that same lifestyle indefinitely. According to Wikipedia, the FIRE movement is a lifestyle movement with the goal of gaining financial independence and retiring early. The model has become particularly popular among millennials in the 2010s, gaining traction through online communities via information shared in blogs, podcasts, and other online discussion forums. The concept of FIRE is something that you and I have both discussed and implemented in our own lives over the past 10 years or so. Yeah, pretty extensively. I'd say it's changed certainly in my life quite a bit. For the better or for the worse? It's way worse. That's why I wanted to discuss it today, to present how bad it is. <laughs> I see. For me, it's it's for the better. Yeah, that was, you know, I was kidding. Okay, great. In this episode, we're going to talk about several aspects of FIRE. First, we're going to go into its definition. Then we're going to talk about the history of modern FIRE, as in how people have been trying to implement strategies to retire early for the past 30 years or so. We're going to talk about some key people who have written about how they've implemented these strategies and been very successful. We're going to talk about our own personal experiences, learning about this and practicing it during parts of our own lives. And then we're also going to talk about some more philosophical ideas about how good it is to retire early and not work for more than half your life. So I think the first thing that we should do now that we've given a, a one-sentence definition of what the FIRE movement, as it's been called, <laughs> which I don't think of it as a movement, but the FIRE strategy or the FIRE lifestyle is... Yeah. I like to think about the words that define something. And so two words in there are financial independence and early retirement. I was curious if, like, if this is a good phrase to define this strategy. So I looked up what the definition of independence is. According to Merriam-Webster... There's a few different definitions depending on different aspects of how the word is used. But anyways, here's three of three of the parts of the definition. Independence, number one, is not subject to control by others. Number two is not requiring or relying on others. And number three is not looking to others for guidance in conduct. Yeah, guidance in conduct. Okay, that's pretty specific. So in, in terms of financial independence, I would say that the first two are the most relevant, but the third one potentially relevant. The main one is, is not requiring or relying on others in terms of finances. And then the first one about not being subject to control could be more of a, a loose control, i.e. you have to work to make money. I think a, a topic that can come up when you're discussing these types of things is the concept of a wage slave. There's actually a, a great deal of control that an employer can exert over you. And I think this strategy yeah. is great for even if you don't retire early just for reducing the amount of control you feel like you are under. I agree. I would say that control is only barely removed from direct control in some cases. You can definitely feel like you have very little choice about whether or not to do it. Yeah. And the second part of the phrase that we'd like to define is early retirement. 
And I think everyone knows what retirement is, but we can define what early is. And for this, I looked up information from a Gallup poll from the years between 2002 and 2014 to see how the retirement age changed during those years. And it's been slightly increasing over those 12 years. In 2002, it was age 59 on average, according to the respondents of this poll. And in year 2014, it was 62. And it basically increased sort of linearly across that time period. So if that's the average age of retirement, what is now, given that poll is six years old, probably something like 63 or 64 years old, early would be before that and potentially much before that. Yeah. If you are able to implement the idea of fire in your life. (laughs) Yeah. Implementing fire more strongly, a stronger fire will lead to many more years. So the first aspect of fire that we're going to discuss is the history of fire. And I'm sure that there's always been people over time trying to save up enough resources such that they don't have to continue working. I'm sure that's been going on since ever, basically. But in terms of the ideas of it that work within the modern society and markets, one good starting point is a book published in 1992 called Your Money or Your Life. This book encourages you to realize how much of your life you're spending trying to make money and also to create more accurate calculations of the full amount of time you spend making that money. Because you might just think of your hourly wage as the time. If I work eight hours a day and I make this much money, Hmm. then that's the money per hour. But there's a lot more that goes into it than just your hourly earnings. The next obvious time sink would be commuting, but then also just preparing for work, also de-stressing from work. So once you add in all these time periods, you'll find that your the amount of your life that you put into earning that wage is much more than eight hours per day. And so this book also encourages you to think of purchases in terms of that amount of time. Once you've calculated the true time cost of your money, is it worth spending five hours of your life on a whatever it is, whatever you're trying to purchase? You can think in terms of the amount of life that you're spending. Another powerful point this book makes, in my opinion, is it encourages you to add up all of the money that you've made in your life, find out that number, and then also find out the amount of money that you have now and look at those two and see if they're what you expect. And then if not, try to make changes to that because you might find that of all of the time that you've spent earning money in your life, you've only managed to save 5% of that for yourself or something like that. Yeah, and we did this with each other the other night, and I would say that having not done it in the past, I was surprised by how much I made. If I had had to guess without considering it for a little bit longer, I definitely would have guessed a lower number. Another thing I think that's interesting about the time value of money and calculating out all the time that you spend in a day on work is it's easy to think of a day as being 24 hours. But realistically, most people sleep at least six, if not about eight hours a day. And so once you you do out your work calculation, I think it's really interesting to start to see the fraction of your weekdays that you're really spending, and, and also even parts of your weekend that you're spending on just your work and the preparation around that. And I think that that's definitely worth considering in terms of this strategy where you can get to a point where you don't have to work as much or don't have to work at all, and then it, you really get an enormous amount of time back. So aside from this book published in 1992, some very important figures in the history of FIRE have emerged online. 
writing blogs. And two major examples of that are a man called Jacob Fisker, who writes a blog called Early Retirement Extreme. And another is a man who goes by the online name Mr. Money Mustache. Yeah, Mr. Money Mustache. Do you want to give some brief points about what Jacob Fisker and Mr. Money Mustache have accomplished in terms of fire? Yeah, sure. Jacob managed to retire in three to four years by significantly reducing his spending and therefore having a very high savings rate. If I remember correctly, I think he was making something like forty or fifty thousand dollars a year. His spending was, I believe, around certainly under ten thousand dollars. It was around seven thousand. So he was able to do it very quickly. And some of the methods that he used to do that were, as he notes in the name of his blog, somewhat extreme by some standards. He ate, I think, the same thing for lunch every day and never changed it. And it was lentils. It's very cheap food. He really brought a sense of sort of system thinking to his reduction in expenses as well. Saying like, okay, well, you could try to buy, find the cheapest car or the cheapest house, but you could also try to find a very cheap house that's close to a, your work and also to a supermarket, and then you don't even need to own a car, and that just reduces a whole category of expenses. Mr. Money Mustache did not have that kind of savings rate, but he took, I think, 10 years of working as an engineer to save up enough money to retire, and did that largely by doing something not quite as similar to Jacob in terms of the system thinking. He mostly took individual aspects of his life and tried to make them better. I think he has one post about making a very long drive in a car and trying to get the best possible gas mileage. And he decided to be a carpenter. Sort of while he was exploring some of this, he he was doing carpentry. One thing I find useful that he frequently writes in his blog posts is taking every single expense and describing what it would be worth in 10 years if you didn't buy that. Mm. It seems like a, a common strategy of his. Yeah, it does become much more obvious with compound interest why that would be important to do. Right. So if this guy Jacob can retire in three or four years on a what's slightly below the median salary in the U.S., then this seems like a pretty powerful strategy. So let's describe how it works or how it is supposed to work ideally. So there's one major aspect of this, which to me, the most interesting part about it is that it's not related to your salary. And that is that your savings rate, meaning the percentage of money that you save every month is directly correlated to the number of years that you have to work. And perhaps correlated isn't even the word. You can directly calculate the number of years that you have to work before retiring based on this savings rate. And I have some examples of savings rates here that I'm going to read from a table. For example, if your savings rate is 5%, meaning that if you made $50,000 a year, you would save $2,500 a year, it would take you 66 years of working to make enough money to retire. However, if your savings rate is 50%, meaning if you make $50,000 a year, you spend 25000 and you save 25000 then you only have to work 17 years until you retire. And then at an extreme example, if you save 75% of your salary, so if you made 50000 and saved 37500 you'd only have to work for seven years before you retire. 
And one number I don't have, but that I commonly see in mainstream retirement advice, basically, like, for example, like from your employer, they say something like, oh, this is Fidelity and they manage your 401k. And if you invest 10% of your salary per year, you'll have enough to retire. Yeah, they definitely have an idea that that's how much is needed for retirement. So another part of the strategy and almost like the set of assumptions that it's based on is average market returns from the stock market. And those tend to average out to be about 7%. And so that assumption is baked into this strategy. So you're saying that on average, the market increases by 7% value per year, but I've certainly seen years where the market has gone down drastically during that year. Yeah, that's a good point. So if you were to take the history of the stock market and its value, as it were, what you get as an average return over all those years is 7%. And if you were to take any 10-year period and take the value of the stocks when you bought them and compare them to what they would be at the end of the 10-year period, there are no 10-year periods where the value goes down. Also, to your point about the value of assets in the stock market, you no longer really own money if you own stocks. You own these stocks, and then when you sell them, you get the money from whatever you sell them for. And so the fact that your stocks are worth less in that moment isn't actually that relevant to your long-term strategy because you're not about to sell them. Some investors would refer to that as a sale, the stocks being on sale when they're lower because mm. you can buy more at a lower price. Yeah, right. So some people see that as a really positive thing. Yeah, so that's sort of a bit about the market and some of the assumptions made about that. And another uh, assumption that's sort of baked into this strategy is that inflation is about 3% per year. And if you consider those numbers, you will see that if you were to start with a value of one, whatever your assets are, if you consider them to be one, after one year, they will grow by 7%. So you'll have 1.07 and inflation was 0.03. And so if you wanted to have your money just grow with inflation, you still have an extra 0.04 or 4% of your original value that you can kind of do whatever you want with because your money's matched inflation. It can keep growing in that way. But that 4%, you have the capacity to spend. And the next year, since your money has already accounted for inflation, it would go up another 7%. And you could do the same thing again. And so if you were to divide 1 by 4% or by 0.04, you get 25. And so if you manage to save 25 years of expenses, then you can indefinitely Assuming that these assumptions work out well for you, you can indefinitely withdraw 4% from your account and you can spend it. And so you never need to make money again. There are some situations, like if you, if you were to enter retirement and the market were to take a sudden downturn, a sudden and, and probably significant downturn, that's a situation in which it actually doesn't quite work out that well. So some folks actually try to save up 30 years or even more years of expenses for additional security. But largely, I think the 4% rule is is pretty good. It's pretty this is sort of the, the, the golden standard, as I understand it, around the people practicing fire. I agree. And it's what's used for the savings rate equals years to retirement calculation. Right. One thing that saving 25 years of your expenses and then withdrawing at a 4% rate assumes is that your lifestyle, the amount of money you spend stays exactly the same as the day that you retire. Yeah, that's a good point. I forgot to mention that. Yeah, that's pretty important. You can't just 
you know, live a very low impact lentil eating lifestyle. And then once you retire, say, Oh, I've, I've seen these great articles on retirement. Seems like it's golf courses and cruise ships. So that's what I'm about to go do. You do have to stick to the spending rate or the level of spending that you were maintaining so far. And it certainly could be that golf courses and cruises are inside that spending rate. And you would have to calculate that as you were implementing the strategy. You and I have talked a lot about these strategies, and I still have a pretty clear memory, not of the specific discussion, but of starting my engineering job and making money. And then at the end of the month, being confused about how there was so much money in my bank account. And this happened for several months. And then eventually we were talking and I mentioned this and you were like, oh, do you want to know what to do with it? Do you want to know how you do money? And I said, yes, I I do. And then you sent me a link, I believe, to Mr. Money Mustache. And I started reading about this this strategy. This was in 2012. And so we've been playing around with this for quite a while. My recollection of that time in 2012 or so is that we both used to sit at work and talk on Gchat for a long period of the day. And in this case, it was about how to not work anymore. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know that's what we were about to talk about, though, because I didn't know that that was possible. I just was confused because I had never calculated my spending. And so in my head, I decided that I was going to put some fraction of my income into my student loans and I was going to, and then the rest was fine. I think I paid almost double the necessary amount of the student loans. And then when I had money left over at the end of the month, I found myself extremely confused because I'd never done out the math of what I spent. And it turned out that if you just want to go hike, that that's not a super expensive activity, especially if you go to nearby mountains. Yeah. So you sent me that information and then I started keeping track of my spending. And quite frankly, for me, that was where a lot of the benefit of this strategy came in. I started to get to see, okay, well, here's where I'm putting my money and here is how much I have left over. And if I do out some math about my loans, I can see like how quickly could I pay them off. And if I spend money on alcohol at bars, then I can't pay my student loans off as quickly as if I only buy alcohol at stores. And that was a simple prioritization for me. There wasn't a lot of question in my mind about how I wanted to do that. And so over the course of about a year, I reduced my spending from $1,500 a month, first down to about $1,200 a month. And then I ended up getting down to about a thousand, so like a 33% decrease. So one change that you mentioned there was basically not spending as much going out, like choosing to maybe have parties at your own house instead of at a bar. Mm -hmm. Do you know of any other changes you made during that time? At the time, I was biking to work pretty much every day anyway. But I did then start to consider that I would try to not take the bus so frequently. I think I chose to tough out the winter bike rides. I also tried to spend less going out on food. And to get my spending down at some point, I decided to move into an attic and pay a reduced rent as a result. That was probably one of the larger moves toward that that I made. But I think a big part of it was just that I just saw that I didn't spend a ton. I hadn't developed expensive habits. And so that made it pretty easy to adopt this strategy. Do you think that you would have been more likely to develop expensive habits if you hadn't started looking at the numbers involved and the math involved in this sort of strategy? 
It seems pretty likely. I mean, it's hard to say. I don't think I tend toward that kind of spending, but I don't know if I really had an opportunity to while I had money because I so quickly, after starting to make more money than I had, became aware of these strategies. One thing that was really important about this for me too is that I just didn't know anything about the stock market and it would never have occurred to me that I could retire early that that was possible. I think the references that I had for solid financial investments at the time was CDs. That was the the best thing I'd been told about. So the difference was pretty big. And what is the difference of rate of return between a CD and the stock market on average? At the time that we were having those discussions, I remember being given some CD rates. And I believe for a five-year CD, I could get an average annual return of 2%. So over five years, that approximately is about a 10% return. Maybe it's 11 or 12, but something along those lines. Whereas for the stock market at an average of 7%, it's more like a 40% return. And so huge difference because of the sort of magic of compound interest, as it were. So I started implementing these strategies and I was able to quickly pay off my student loans and then I started saving up and I, at my current level of spending, I was going to, you know, need some amount of money to retire. And I did out some math and decided that I could get there within five to six years. And so then I started really trying to stick to that level of uh, savings. And that got waylaid a little bit due to some funny things with my job and and some of the things like that. But ultimately, I, I sort of let go of that strategy and decided that I didn't need to save that much. And that retiring that young wasn't necessarily what I wanted to do with that time. I didn't want to convert that time to money. I think I decided that I would prefer to spend that time doing other things. But nonetheless, the looking at my spending and saving up a bunch of money and really getting to understand more about the stock market was hugely important for my life as it's been. It's also let me do some pretty cool trips. Like I've gone to Nepal. I've gotten to take some time off and go to Central America. I've gone and worked seasonal jobs and been comfortable about the amount of savings I had sort of backing me up in case anything happened, which I can definitely say having talked to other seasonal workers is not a common experience. So it's really been quite valuable to me to have enacted that strategy. It's led me to also look at certain things through a different lens. Like at one point I was trying to figure out, okay, if you need this much money to retire, what are some other options? And so I looked at like the National Guard and what do they pay? And if I really couldn't make other jobs work out, could I just join the National Guard and then they would pay me? And I looked at, oh, how much would it cost to like just go stay in a monastery forever? And in the trip to Nepal, I did out my expenses and I was spending between 10 and $15 a day which is probably around $4,000 a year. And so that's, a based on this strategy, is only about $100,000. And that blew my mind because I was just like, wow, I could indefinitely hike in Nepal if I just save up $100,000. So there's been some really interesting perspectives I've got to have about various things that I've experienced. For my part, when we started talking about this and practicing this sort of together, I was already aware of the stock market. Unlike you, I was already using it. So for me, the biggest part was was seeing the ways that people had decreased their spending and therefore increased their savings rate, which is the most important thing to do when implementing this strategy. Because as we've mentioned, the savings rate is directly tied to the number of years it takes to retire or the number of years that it takes to make enough money such that you could retire at the same spending rate. 
And so I really enjoyed reading some books and websites about this and seeing especially some of the extreme measures that people took. Like one that you already mentioned was the guy Jacob from Early Retirement Extreme who claimed that he only ate lentils because they were a very cheap source of food. And it sort of goes along what you said about like not going out and then staying at your own apartment instead, which is that it doesn't seem like that big of an expense. Like you said, it might be like $300 a month or something that you spend on food. Whereas if you only eat lentils, you can probably spend $30 a month, something like this. And so reading those sort of extreme savings strategies or choices, I guess, made me more willing to try them in my own life. Just like knowing that someone else had attempted that sort of extreme savings made it seem okay for me to try as well. So for me, it was more of the sort of simple strategies of tracking spending and looking at the categories of money that I spent and then imagining how much sort of value or joy each of them brought to my life and then reducing them, the ones that I thought were unnecessary. What were some of the bigger categories of that for you? The biggest one probably was the same as yours which isn't that exciting, but yeah, not going out, like not going out for lunch at work as often, not going out around the city as often. One thing I would say is when I first got my first full-time job, I had the same experience that you did, which is that I had way more money in my bank account than I ever had before. And it was also way more money than I needed to spend because I had been living like a student before that. And so for the first year or so, I spent most of that money. And I would say I spent most of it on shopping for outdoor gear. That was my main hobby at the time. And once I started tracking my spending, I realized I could get the same benefit from things like gear from consignment shops, for example, or from just not shopping at all, basically. It's the realization that you don't have to spend the money that you make, that instead you can invest it for the future. And if you choose to make that a large portion of your spending, and I'm like conflating spending with investing here. Like if you have extra money, what do I do with mm. it? Do I spend it on things or do I spend it on investments for the future? And so I chose to try to aggressively invest all of my extra money rather than having any money left over. It was as if I was pretending that I made way less money by like immediately investing my paycheck as soon as I got it. Yeah. One analogy that I think is from a blog that I'm sure you pointed me to was that you can either spend your money and it will work for somebody else, or you can put your money to work for you and it will bring you additional money. And I really liked that concept. It made it really easy for me to think about, okay, well, do I want my money to go over there or do I want it to stay here? And then when it became clear that if it stayed here, I could put it to work and it would make money for me. I was a little blown away by that. <laughs> I wish I had understood this earlier. <laughs> yeah. And during that time, my savings rate was about 50%. I was saving about half of my after-tax paycheck, which if you look at the table of savings rate versus years until you have enough money to retire, would be 17. So at the time when I started, I believe I was 22, maybe 23. Hmm. And so 23 plus 17 is 40. So if I had continued that plan it's very likely that I would have been able to retire when I was 40. Although one thing that that sort of aggressive saving and investing allowed me to do was take what might be called a partial early retirement three years ago, Yeah, which I did. I trusted the numbers and the investment and so on such that I think I could maintain a pretty low spending lifestyle and just see what happened basically. And so in 2017, in January, I quit my job 
And then I went for a, a 5,000 mile bicycle ride across Canada and then continued not to work for a total of 455 days before getting a new job. So for me, that was definitely a benefit of having implemented these savings and investing strategies. I didn't take them to their conclusion in terms of how they're written in the so-called basic strategy of retiring when I was 40, but instead I used them to give me some freedom in my late 20s. I reached a somewhat similar conclusion, at least I haven't continued to try to get to the level of savings that would allow me to retire right now or soon. I've sort of moved on from that as a goal and decided to take time here and there and try other things. And I think that level of financial independence feels so empowering that at least for me, that was enough. I don't feel like I necessarily need to have enough savings to retire. Just having enough savings to feel like I could not work and everything would be okay even if it was a while, was quite a nice feeling uh, and continues to be, quite frankly. And I think particularly some of those savings when we were both in our early 20s, I don't think many of our peers were doing that. And I think because of the nature of compound interest, where it's going to double every 10 years, then after 10 years, it's you know twice as much. After 20 years, it's four times as much. After 30 years, it's eight times as much. So you really get more benefit by having that be in the stock market earlier. And so I I really feel like you and I have both just ended up, sort of incidentally ended up in this amazing financial situation just by having this fairly straightforward piece of knowledge. I agree. And I think it's a very powerful piece of knowledge, for example, for people just finishing high school. Because if you were to immediately implement a 50% savings rate, which I just noted gives you enough money to retire after 17 years, you would be able to retire at age 35 if you kept that same lifestyle. Yeah. That's, which to me seems pretty powerful. That's pretty young. A good 30 years below the current retirement rate. I mean, really, you have to go to school until you're 18. That's not a tried and true statement. But assuming that that's the case, you've got this sort of 45-year period where it's expected that you're going to work. And if you can get away with only working 17 years of that, I mean, that's a huge difference. So that's a really good point about the... The earlier you're exposed to this, the more powerful it can be. Yeah, so along with our own experiences, there have been many, many people who have been trying to follow these guidelines and have written about their own experiences online. We can put some links to some of our favorite blogs in the notes for this show. People who have different employment, different lifestyles, who have all tried to reach these goals and have very extensively documented their journey in terms of what they work on, what they do, what sort of tricks they use, how their investments are going. I like those varieties of blogs too, because I think some bloggers really concentrate on the market and making really smart market decisions. And there's others that just are much more creative about it and are a little bit, maybe even almost lackadaisical around the market aspect and just have those assumptions, then they're fine with it. And they move on and they talk about different aspects of life and more of the philosophy around why does it make sense to do this? Does it even make sense? What are they going to do with all their time? And I think those questions are, are really interesting, not just as someone who feels like they have to work, but just as a person in general in, in life. It's certainly tied into the philosophy of minimalism of trying to get the same enjoyment from a small number of things, basically. And it has the, in this case, has the double benefit of you not spending money on anything besides that. 
which I, I think are both good philosophies to follow. Yeah, minimalism almost feels like a consequence of this more than the initial consideration. It's like if you're trying to save a lot of money, you will invariably not spend a lot of it. And then unless you are a super thrifty person, you will not have a ton of things. And because of the sort of almost learning-oriented aspect of a lot of these blogs where it's like, hey, you know, experiment, you know, try out things. If you go into that with that mindset, it makes it very interesting to kind of move through life and see like, do I have to spend that money? So you're asking me earlier too about, you know, would I have been able to do this if I hadn't been exposed to these ideas? Would I have saved a lot of money? And again, you know, it's difficult to know for myself, but I would say one thing that I've seen a fair number of my peers do, and it even has sort of a name, it's called lifestyle inflation. You know, they start to make a certain amount of money, they have it, and then they say to themselves, oh, well, if I have this money, then it's reasonable that I should spend this money because, you know, I haven't saved a ton of money before. Why would I save a ton of money now? which is just a very different style of planning. It's not necessarily that that's wrong, but it is interesting and that I think it's just not very, it's not very mindful. They're not thinking critically about what do I want this money to go toward? What did this money come from? It isn't a way to represent my time and how I've spent that. And do I want my time to become, as we referenced earlier, going out and eating and drinking alcohol in places where it's super expensive? Or do I want it to represent that I got a house at a much younger age or don't have to work anymore or things like that. And I think those questions are, are really fascinating. Yeah. One thing I would note about lifestyle inflation, particularly in the US, is the cost of cars. Cars are a pretty central part to a lot of people's lives. And I don't have the numbers on this, but you can definitely see that if you buy new cars over the course of your life, it ends up adding up to hundreds of thousands of dollars of spending. Whereas if you save up money and then buy a used car with cash, you spend far less money, maybe like 15% of that total amount of money over the course of your life. And that's one thing that I didn't mention when I was describing the ways that I've implemented these methods or grown my savings rate is by never buying a new car, even though I could and like such things are advertised to me. I've had times when I've gone into my bank for some sort of transaction and the teller has told me like, oh, you could certainly qualify for a car loan. I've also been told, oh, you could certainly qualify for a mortgage. Would you like to look into that? There's this sort of assumption, like baseline assumption in general society that if you can qualify to get a loan for something, or you can possibly make enough money to pay off something, then you should get it. This is something that I have certainly avoided, and this is tied to lifestyle inflation. Yeah, it's almost as if they think you should be leveraging your assets and income by having a corresponding amount of debt. It feels like it's very different than, I know my grandparents certainly didn't think debt was acceptable. They thought a mortgage was, I mean, that was like a huge deal. To get a mortgage was a big commitment. And if you could, you passed on your house to your kids. And there's this whole different idea around how debt was treated. And it's interesting that within a couple of generations, the bank's like, yeah, you want a mortgage? You haven't told us that you want a house, but do you want a mortgage anyway? I recall reading a very good article about this on the blog, Mr. Money Mustache. And I could link to this article in the notes where I don't know if it's the title or like the main point, it says something like your debt is an emergency. If you have debt, you shouldn't be doing anything other than cooking your own food and going to work and like exercising by going for walks and doing push-ups. So you should do absolutely <laughs> nothing until you pay off your debt besides like those free things to do, which I think is a pretty good idea. Yeah. Yeah. I do like that perception of debt seems helpful, particularly with things like credit card debt, but really even with, with other types. Another thing that could be learned from reading about people's experiences with this strategy 
is that, like you said, they might not have a typical retirement of golf courses and cruises, and they might not even have a typical retirement of not working, which you might say is cheating. But I think one reason for that is because if you take the standard retirement route of retiring when you're about 65, you're probably pretty tired of working and probably pretty satisfied with basically chilling for a long time. Whereas if you retire when you're 40 or so, it's very likely that you'll still have some sort of ambition or energy to do something. And you might discover during your early retirement that you want to actually do that, even though you don't have to. From a financial perspective, you don't have to. And so one thing I would tell people to maybe not watch out for, but tell people to keep in mind sort of as like an answer to the potential criticism of why don't you want to work? You don't want to work. Like, what do you want to do? Lay around all day? An answer to that is that it's likely that if you have this extra time earlier in life that you're going to find something to do with it, potentially something that's far more satisfying, fulfilling than what you might have done before, that is work at a company for your whole life. Yeah. And I think it's a really interesting trend amongst the bloggers that we've been exposed to. Mr. Money Mustache is a good example for this. He retired and then I don't actually know exactly what the timing of him starting the blog was. Um, whether or not he was already retired or or what. But he started his blog and he's retired and he's writing about it. And um, at some point, I remember he had an article that basically stated that his income from the blog was equivalent to what his income from his savings or from his investments was. And so in sort of a funny twist of fate, he spent 10 years saving up money so that he could retire early and then wrote a blog about it and then ended up making just as much money from that as he did from all of those savings. And so it was influential on me to read that because it became clear that if you think you're going to never want to work again, then it's definitely necessary to have 25 to 30 years of savings. But if you think that it's likely that you're going to want to do some work, then you can plan a little differently around that and feel more flexible around it. And that's really a powerful idea. Even just to be able to say like, I'm going to take a year off and I'm going to consider what I actually want to be doing with myself. And maybe you want to be doing the job you were doing. I mean, that's fine. But I do think it gives you space to be considerate of it. I think we should talk about two major expenses that are akin to lifestyle inflation that we haven't mentioned yet. And those two topics are children and medical costs. So my understanding is that for a little over five years now, you haven't had health insurance from an employer? Yeah, that's correct. What has your experience been with managing medical costs during a similar period to what early retirement might be like? And do you think that's sustainable for the long term, especially since medical costs tend to increase as you age? Yeah, that's a good question. At one point, I just found the least expensive plan on the healthcare connector the sort of Obamacare portal. And it was sort of interesting. I mean, I got to explore some different healthcare plans and and there's some different things you can do related to savings for different plans if you feel like you're a healthier person. But I was surprised. I mean, the cheapest possible plan was $173 a month and the deductible was the same as the out-of-pocket limit, which was $6,300. And so I was gambling a bit with my health and was really just hedging my bets for a pretty catastrophic injury where I might have a $100,000 bill or something like that. So yeah, then moving forward, I mean, it does seem clear to me that I will have to get some form of health insurance at some point. And, And it's likely that I will be paying for it or that I will have employer provided health insurance. 
I don't know if I know the answer, but how much do the long-term costs of health insurance increase? Because like we talked about, you have to save about 25 times your salary. Mm. And so like, how much would that increase your spending if you didn't factor it in when you retired? Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. And you might not know because I might not know either. So certainly when I was using the health connector, you know, there was this plan, $173, and that was the lowest one I could find. But there were also plans available that were more like 500 or $700 per month, per month. And they provided more, um, comprehensive care sort of, I mean, it's, it's hard to tell, you know, I mean, really you'd have to start to look at the probabilities of, you know, you basically do some actuarial work to see what the likelihood of you getting some of those diseases are. You get up into the three or $400 range, at least at this time, I think these, these prices have increased to my knowledge, but and the $300, $400 range, your deductible went down to about $2,000, which is still pretty high. At least that's my opinion around it. And then as you got up to more like five to 700 your deductible went down toward like the low hundreds. And then you could sort of rely on the idea that you would probably not have to spend a ton of money at any given time on your healthcare, but you had to pay a monthly fee of five to $700. So- I mean, at 500, you're already at the $6,000 a year that is the out of bottom back is the maximum for the cheapest plan. So it's definitely a, an interesting balancing act. It is worth considering, you know, as you're moving toward retirement, I feel like I'm a really healthy guy and I would probably make some assumptions around feeling okay about having a cheaper health plan. But if that's not the situation you find yourself in, you are going to want to factor in, once my employer is not paying for my health plan, how do I want to do it? In sort of an interesting twist of fate, traveler's insurance is incredibly cheap, and sometimes traveling can also be very cheap. And so if you retire, you could try that out for a little bit. <laughs> and I think that technically counts as coverage, but I'm not 100% sure on all those rules. It just would be an interesting thing to look into. Cool. Yeah. And then I would say... As for children, if you make that choice in your life, you simply have to add that to your spending rate. And so in terms of the core strategy, it doesn't change at all. It's just that you have to recalculate your savings rate and therefore recalculate the number of years until retirement based on some estimate of what you would spend on your children, which would be easier if you already have children Yeah. <laughs> rather than guessing. Yeah. If you're already spending the money and, and have a sense for what the costs are going to be, that's definitely helpful. And it's worth noting too that, I mean, I don't currently have a plan to have a child. And so that choice makes some of this easier to do. But Mr. Money Mustache has a child. There's a couple of other bloggers that I know have children. It's definitely possible to have kids and follow through with this plan as long as you calculate your expenses properly. So we just talked a little bit about how medical expenses and expenses related to children are important factors to consider in trying to plan this sort of strategy out. Those are sort of these assumptions that we're making that, you know, if you're going to have a kid, you're not going to pretend that you don't have a kid when you plan for your future expenses. And like, that might seem obvious, but I think there's some other assumptions that are sort of interesting to consider. And sort of an obvious one is that it's available to you to save money. You might be in a situation where that's not the case. This is not a good plan for you if that's true. Another assumption from my perspective, and one that I considered a little bit and certainly talked with other folks about, is that you're going to live 
to an older age to maybe, you know, sort of a typical retirement type age, like around 65, like what we were saying. And really, I think the expectation is that you're going to live longer, going to live to, say, the life expectancy of someone in the US, which is 77 for men and 81 for women. But if you don't have that assumption, then I think it's much harder to try to implement this strategy. If you have a suspicion around the idea that you might die younger, then it's important to note that you maybe don't want to spend all your years until 40 saving for your years after that because you're not sure you're going to have them. I don't think that you need to make that assumption for these ideas to be useful to you. For one thing, I think it's a pretty low probability assumption. The average life expectancy is an average. So like half the people live that long and then another some portion like 15% live close to that long. If the median is 78 for men, the next standard deviation is probably something like 70. So it's still a long time. Another thing I think is that implementing these ideas can improve your life at any point, basically. The improvement doesn't only come over a 40, 50 year period. For example, you and I have already discussed ways that we've used these methods in our lives. And I would say that we both agree that they've changed for the better because of it, even though we're only in our early 30s. So the assumption that in order to use this plan, you have to believe that you live to the median life expectancy, I don't think is a strong assumption. Yeah, I see that. I just think that in in the course of life, even if the chances of something are low, your experience of it, you don't experience being in the majority you you can kind of know you're in the minority, but it's it's hard to experience the majority in, a, in an active way. And so I think people are more concerned about the possibility of dying younger than maybe the probability indicates they should be. Even though the, the chances are low, the idea that it's possible to have happen, I think, is is relevant. And if you think that if that were to happen to you, that you will be particularly upset with your choices so far because of the way that you planned... I think that could be an important assumption to make. Another interesting assumption for this, and one that you and I have talked about a little bit, is <laughs> I still have a vague memory of this as well. I think we were probably sitting at work and G-chatting with one another, and uh, I was realizing that by putting my money into the stock market, you know, as we went over earlier, it could go down in value, and it could go down really significantly. And maybe I would have to sell it in that moment. I mean, I don't know why, but that's possible. Probably similarly unlikely as the situation we were just discussing, but still possible. So I was considering these potential bad outcomes. And you noted to me that if if the US economy crashes that hard, that probably my savings aren't my biggest concern, that yeah. maybe there's a different situation going on. I think it's it's much more of a concern for people who were at the age that they want to retire. If the market goes down in ways that it has in the past, for example, 50% down in 2009, that's much more of a problem at that exact point if you're retiring then. But if you're not planning to retire then, if you're still in the in the savings phase, then that's much less big of a problem. And if the market were to go down so much that that became a problem for you during your savings phase, like when you're young and working, then you can imagine that it would be so much worse for other people like people at retirement, for example, that there would either have to be some nationwide effort to save people or it would be the end of society somehow. And so whether or not you've invested money in the stock market 
really doesn't matter at that point. <laughs> yeah, it could be an interesting consideration for if you aren't interested in spending your younger years making a ton of money so that in your later years you don't have to be making money uh, because you think the stock market is going to crash terribly and everything is going to you know go to shit, then that's fine. You're like welcome to believe that. I would have a challenging time trying to tell you what the probabilities of those things are. So, so sure. And that sort of gets into a thought that I've had a little bit too of like, it's not necessarily obvious to me that it's more useful to be accumulating wealth as a young person rather than trying to do things like strengthen community ties or explore different jobs. Those things also have a lot of value. And another obvious assumption that people age so if you have this retirement plan where you say, oh, I'm going to get to 40 and then I'm going to retire and I'm going to just like go ski all the time and you haven't taken care of your body well during that, maybe skiing is not as accessible now. And so there's definitely other factors, I think, than just money that can be considered. But insofar as money is concerned, outside of other factors, I think this strategy is stellar. It's just a great thing to know about. I agree. If, if you... If you work or use money, then it would be good to consider this. Right. Yeah, that certainly shouldn't be used at the detriment of other ways to better your life or create safeguards for yourself. Building a strong community around yourself will also help you in the future for sure. Maybe more than having money will. But like you said, in terms of how to operate with your money, this is the way that, that we found to be the most useful. So as we've said, uh, Jared and I have had a lot of discussions about this, and we find that we probably have way more to say than we can fit in a single show. So we've decided that we are going to have a second show on this topic. Woo! Second show! Woo. In particular, in that episode, we're going to talk about a bit more of the philosophy of early retirement and sort of try to answer the question, is early retirement fulfilling? maybe compared to other other lifestyles, and also bring up some of the potential pitfalls or criticisms of the strategy. Great. Outro time? Yeah, outro time, yeah. You've just listened to the recorded internet broadcast, a.k.a. The Rib. We're glad that you've taken the time to listen to us talk about the topic of financial independence and early retirement. I'm Tim, and the other host is Jared. Our producer and editor is Juliana. You can find this episode and other episodes on our website, which is recordedinternetbroadcast.com. For all episodes, you can find links to any of the content mentioned if you want to explore further. We also will be willing to receive and read and respond to, maybe on air, any fan mail or comments or criticism at the email address recordinternetbroadcast at gmail.com. That's all for today. Okay, thanks, bye.